Thanks for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We hope this message challenges and encourages you, and we would love to see you at one of our services on Saturday evenings at 5.30 or Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. As we uh, prepare to open our hearts to hear from the Father and His voice, uh, it would be appropriate for us to pray. And I'd like to pray a couple verses from Psalm 63 as we center ourselves before the Lord. Let's pray. This is a song of David when he was in the desert of Judah. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. And I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of foods and with singing lips my mouth will praise you. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In 1414, we took a little trip along with General Barrick down the Kishon River bed. We took some kosher camp food. We took some kosher beans. We caught the men of Canaan stuck in mud up to their knees. I've always been fascinated with singing. Not so much the music or their lyrics, but why people sing. Why do you sing? Here's my theory. I think for two main reasons people sing. First, we sing for love. Love writes the songs. When our heart is captured by the joy of a relationship, it's like Robert Phillips in his poem, The Changed Man. If you were to hear me imitating Pavarotti in the shower... Every morning you would know how much you have changed my life. Because of you, I buy new clothes. Because of you, I'm a warrior of joy. Because of you and me. Love writes the songs, but, and secondly, grief will eventually sing that song. People sing through tears. I've sat with hundreds of families to help them bury their loved ones And we always, always get to the songs. The movie August Rush once put it this way, God gave us music to remind us that there's someone else besides us in the universe. And so we sing. We sing our grief. We sing our love. I wonder if we were to hear you singing this morning, what would we hear? What would we hear? Welcome to Love This Book. We are preaching the Bible from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. And we're beginning to understand that the Bible is one story about one person, Jesus Christ, in relentless pursuit of his prodigal people, which reminds us that we exist in a reality of grace. And in my humble opinion, 
There's no other book of the Bible that teaches us grace like the book of Judges. Have you read Judges lately? No country for old men. Let's get to where we are in the story, and then we want to dive into one of the stories of Judges. God, well, let's start. Yeah, it starts with God. God made the world and everything in it. We broke the world and everything in it. God raised up a family, made them into a nation called Israel, and the mission of Israel was to show all the nations of the world what God is like. We come to this story of Israel. They have just been given a piece of land by God. It's God's land, but he says, I want you to move into the Sinai Peninsula and the area around. I want you to establish a base of operations, and from there, I want you, as God's people, to reach all nations and show them what I'm like. So they've been settling the land, but it's troublesome. It's troublesome primarily because the people of Israel, they're really good at what we could call slight obedience. Not full obedience, not always disobedience, but slight obedience. But slight obedience is disobedience. And it gets them in trouble. In the book of Judges, you see this again and again. What happens is they're not fully obedient in pushing out the Canaanites from this land. Now, as Nick shared last week, you can listen to last week's sermon to go deeper into this. But the Canaanite people, well, let's just say they'd reached the limits of God's patience. I mean, their primary religious worship expression was child sacrifice. Their primary way of living out culture and relationship was sexual immorality. And God says, enough. It's time. And he brings judgment. And uh, Joshua and Israel, they uh, push the Canaanites out. But the problem is they don't push them all the way out. And what begins to happen is the Canaanite culture begins to influence the Israelite culture. And Israel finds themselves adopting some of the theology of Canaan, some of the lifestyle and values of Canaan. And it begins to lead to this cycle in Judges. It goes like this. The people of Israel sin. They, they live like Canaanites. And then they fall into oppression. They lose their influence in the culture and they're overtaken by other countries and cultures. And then they cry out, God, help us. And God sends a deliverer and the deliverer rescues them and they have times of peace. And then it starts all over again at least six times in the book of Judges. Sin, oppression, deliver rescue and peace, and it starts all again, this cycle, six times. And what's interesting, as you read the book, there's at least six main judges, and they get progressively worse in character. It starts out really well with people like Ehud and Othniel, and the one we're going to look at today, Deborah. But by the end, you have guys like Gideon, who didn't trust a word God or anyone else said, and it ends with what I would argue is the chief narcissist in the whole story, a guy named, you may have heard of him, Long Hair and Muscles, Samson, the chief narcissist of the scripture. Not only that, not only do you get progressively worse, but the people's interest wanes and gets less and less and less. So that by the end of Samson's story, there's no one showing up from Israel. No armies, no people interested. Samson is literally blind Samson by himself trying to deliver Israel from the Philistines. The book ends with what I would argue is the most horrific story in the entire Bible, In brief, you can read it, it's Judges 17 on. It's about a priest, a a Levite, who has a servant girl. 
And they're traveling through the hills of Ephraim. And it's right out of the pages of Sodom and Gomorrah. As soon as the town, this town they're in, finds out that this guy's in there, the men of the city come and they want to have sex with this priest. But instead, the, the homeowner and the priest send the, the women out. And the women are raped and abused and killed. And they're left on the doorstep. And the Levite is so crushed that he actually takes the girl's, little girl's dead body, carves it up, and sends a piece of her body out to every tribe in Israel and says, look where we are. And then the book of Judges ends with this cryptic statement. There was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Where's the grace in that? Let's see if we can find some grace in the book of Judges. We're going to look at the story of Deborah. Why? Well, you know, i got to be honest, because I like Deborah. That's why. Actually, Deborah and her story is the only story in the book of Judges that gets both a story and a song. One of the great rich songs of the Old Testament is about Deborah. She's someone we should know. So let's dig into the story of Deborah, put ourselves there for a few moments, and then a couple of lessons at the end before we go. Are you ready? Deborah. It starts this way. And again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here's the cycle. Now that Ehud, the previous judge, was dead, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Here's the cycle. So a couple of things to point out. First, Jabin, king of Cana, it's not a name, it's a title. Like Pharaoh of Egypt, it's Jabin of Canaan. He's just the president, or he's, he holds an office as the leader of Canaan. And he rules from a city called Hazor. Now, Hazor was the central port of a trade route that started up in the north with the, the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley and went all the way down to the south to Egypt. And Hazor was the town that all the caravans passed through. It was a well-known, wealthy, um, powerful city in this time frame of Judges. It's a 400-year period of 1450 B.C. to 1050 B.C. In fact, today you can still see the, the ruins of the city of Hazor, and, and you can just get a sense of how influential this city was. It, it was not only uh, Jabin's city, but it was also where the army of Canaan was kept, and that was led by a man named Sisera. And it says in the text that Sisera has 900 iron chariots. Everyone say, ooh. What you need to know is this is a transition in human civilization from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And you need to know that this is the latest in military technology, iron chariots. They were essentially killing platforms with things swinging from them, swords coming from them, running through a mass of human army, they could do devastating slaughter from an iron-killing platform. So such was Jabin and such was Sisera that Israel lived 
scared. In fact, we get a sense of what their life was like from the song that Deborah writes in Judges 5. She described it this way. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took the winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So capture this. This is what life was like in this moment. There was uh, no safety or security on public roads. There was no leadership until God raised up Deborah, and there was no army, no shield or spear among 40,000. So hard, difficult, fearful times. And God says, I hear you. And so here comes Deborah. Look at how Deborah is described in Judges 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lipidoth, was leading Israel at that time. And I just want to pause there and point out something very important. The New International Version, which this is, and it's translating from the original language Hebrew into uh, English, it's trying to be smooth, but I think it does a bit of a disservice because here's how that sentence reads in the original language. Now Deborah, a woman, a prophet, the wife of Lipidoth. What the writer is doing is using every convention of the Hebrew language to make sure you and I know one very important thing about Deborah. She's a woman. It is a woman that is doing two things with Israel. One, judging. The text later says that she judges Israel. or The the NIV puts it lead, but it's actually the word judge. And you need to understand that in that day, a judge of Israel was not an elected office, not an appointed office. It was an office attained only by reputation and influence. This woman, Deborah, was such a person of character that Israel wanted her to be their judge. And she was not only a judge, but she was a prophet. She would speak for God. When Deborah speaks, God speaks. And I think what's really important for us to know is that the text is completely calm about this. That a woman, even in a male-oriented ancient culture, a woman is leading his people. We go on. She held court under the palm. Oops, sorry. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. And she sent for the son of Barak. Now, Deborah's name means bee, as in buzzing. Barak's name means lightning, as in not quick or brilliant. Because he's, Barak gets invited by Deborah, the judge of Israel, to get an army, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go, this is the Lord speaking through Deborah, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. And I, the Lord, will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. So the mouthpiece of God, Deborah, says to this military general, Barak, you go to Mount Tabor and get ready for war. But notice Barak's response in verses 8 and 9. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. 
But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, I need to pause here and just say, I'm kind of with Barak. If I knew that Deborah was the appointed leader of the nation, and I knew that Deborah was the mouthpiece of God, I would want her with us as well. I don't blame Barak here. But Deborah does. She says, certainly I will go with you, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, I just think we need to take off our 21st century glasses of our sensitivities and values and read this in the ancient text. While the text is calm about Deborah leading Israel, in that day and time, for a woman to be physically present on a battlefield would have been an indictment on male courage. So the last thing that you should ever see in a standing army in that day is women fighting on the battlefield. So let's enter the next scene. Yeah, the battlefield. That, the first scene was Deborah's palm, where she judges, and we learned about Deborah. The next scene is the battle. There's a twist before we see how the battle plays out. His name is Heber the Kenite. What happens is that as uh, uh, Barak is getting the army together and heading towards Mount Tabor, a spy comes into the plot, Heber. And Heber, who's with the Kenites, and the Kenites had signed a peace treaty with Israel. So Heber is betraying not only Israel and the peace treaty, but he's betraying his own people, the Kenites. But he's a friend of Sisera. And he goes to Sisera and he says, Sisera, Israel's gathering at Mount Tabor, and their plan is to attack you. So Sisera gets his 900 iron chariots. The time has come for you to say, ooh, and they get to the base of Mount Tabor, and the only way out for Israel is to come through and down and meet in the Kishon Riverbed, which is dry in the dry season, and have it out. So God, through the mouthpiece of Deborah, says, go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Now remember, the song says there's not a sword or a spear in Israel. This is, I mean, they're walking in to 900 death chariots. How's this going to play out? It doesn't, humanly speaking, look good. Verse 15. As Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and the army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariots and fled on foot. Yeah! Israel wins. Everyone's wiped out except the general. And the general, and the irony in this text is chewable. Sisera escapes, and the only place he knows where to hide is his friend, the spy, Heber the Kenites. And so he goes to Heber the Kenites' house, and sure enough, Heber's wife, Jael, walks out. And what should we say about Jael, Heber's wife? Can we say that she had hospitality that was to die for? She meets him, invites him in. He's cold, wet, exhausted, traumatized. She covers him, lie down, covers him with blankets, and she gives him goat's milk 
at room temperature, which is in the ancient world the closest thing to a sedative you could give someone. And Cicero, the mightiest man, one of the mightiest men in the face of the earth, falls asleep. And jail, did I mention that the Kenites were tent-dwelling nomadic people? And that in those cultures, the women set up the tents? And jail takes a mallet in one hand and a tent stake in the other and drives it through the brain of the most powerful man in the country. And she puts Israel out of his misery and introduces Sisera to the true God of Israel. And we look at that and say, oh, I don't like that. I, I don't like that. I, I, that's too violent. R-rated. I want to say two things about it. First, we come to texts like these, and the one thing I think I want to ask us to do is to filter our cultural snobbery. We come to it thinking, oh, we're so civilized. We're, we're so much past anything like that. Are we? I was listening this week, perhaps you were too, to a feature on National Public Radio called Teens Under Stress. And there are teens in the room, and first of all, I want you to know that we listen to that, and we are so empathetic to how hard it is to be a teen in our culture. They interviewed these teenagers, and these teenagers were talking about climate change, and will we even have a planet in 20 years? We should discuss that. And they talked about how as a teen, it's so intimidating to think about paying for college or paying, I mean, will anyone be able to buy a house in their 20s in Denver? But the one that got us was this interview with a girl named Elise. And Elise was sharing that every time she walks into a room in her school, she, the first thing she does is looks around and remembers where the exit in the room is or where she can hide if a shooter breaks into her classroom. In fact, she shared in the interview that just a few months ago they did an active shooter drill and she was huddled up with 30 students and it came to her that she should make her will. And later that afternoon, she got out a piece of paper and wrote down that all her clothes should go to her best friend, Abby, and that her Michael Scott, that's what she said, poster from the office TV show, should go to her best friend, Eli. And did I say that this girl was a sixth grader? We have sixth graders writing their wills in our classrooms. And we're quick to, oh, that's a violent culture. God help us. Second thing I want to say is that God does not operate according to our sensitivities. Do we realize that? We want to remake God into cream of wheat and cotton candy. A God that's like us, a God that we like, a God that honors our sensitivities. The fact is that what jail did, God owned. 
You know, I was intrigued reading the commentaries, read a lot of commentaries. What a lot of the Bible scholars tried to do was create justification for what Jael did in killing Sisera. They, they called it the just war theory. Now, you and I could debate just war and, and the theory that God gives the government the power to wield the sword. And what they tried to say was, well, at that time, Jael was kind of technically enlisted in the army of Israel, and she was operating by the mouthpiece of God through Deborah. So it was a just war, and that's why she did it. And I'm like, huh, I, I don't know. Do we need that? Really? Because here's what matters, verse 23 on that day, God, not jail, God subdued Jabin, king of Cana, before the Israelites. So what do we learn from this story of Deborah? Two things. First, God delivers his people. Let me say it again. Take it with you. God delivers his people. The main characters in this story are not Deborah and Barak. The main characters are not Jael and Sisera. The main character, the writer, the director, and the producer of this story is none other than God, the Lord of Israel. It's everywhere in the text. Let me just show you briefly. Verse 2, the Lord sold Israel into the hands of Jabin. Verse 7, I, the Lord, will lure Sisera the commander. Verse 9, the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Verse 14, go this day, the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. Verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin the Canaanite. The question is how he did it. Here's what I want you to see. In the song, we're told how the Lord subdued Jabin and Sisera. If you look at verses 4 and 5 in chapter 5, what happened? How did, that, how did Israel rout 900 chariots without a sword or a shield? When you, the Lord, went out from Sarah, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice, poured down water. And then verses 19 to 21, kings came, they fought, kings of Canaan fought. Tanuk by the waters of Megiddo, they took no plunder of silver, the heavens, the stars fought from their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul. Be strong. What happened? Thunderstorm. The latest in military technology could not operate in six inches of mud. Thunderstorm. God is a... Th we live with a thunderstorm. King of kings. Lord of lords, come to deliver his people. Thunderstorm. You know, I want to remind us why we come and sit in these seats week after week. We come not to have fun, though I hope it's enjoyable. We come because it's good for our kids. It's we want it to be good for our kids, and I hope it is. We might come because we know we have to have our guilt assuaged and the joy of our salvation restored and sit under the cross week after week to experience forgiveness, and I hope we do. 
But the main reason we come and sit in these seats is to honor the thunderstorm. Folks, by the time the sun sets over the Pacific Ocean today, 28,000 people in China will have received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. An oppressive government cannot stop him. He's unstoppable. By the time the sun sets in the Pacific Ocean, 20,000 people in the continent of Africa, south of the Sahara, will come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Ecological disaster and anarchy cannot stop him. By the time the sun sets over the Pacific Ocean tonight, 35,000 people in Latin America will have given their lives to Jesus Christ, which means depraved cartels and extreme poverty cannot stop his agenda. We come to be reminded that we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves, the mission of God, God restoring his prodigal people so that they can show the nations what God is like. That's why we're here. Is anyone listening out there? Yeah. That's why we're here. King of kings, Lord of lords, come to deliver his people. I want to say one quick thing in terms of application of that. I'm convinced that the people who truly know and believe that are people who pray. People who understand that what really shapes this world is not what's coming out of Washington, D.C., or Moscow, or London. But reality is shaped by people like you and like me on our knees pleading for God and his agenda. And it's interesting, when Jesus came and walked among us, he did teach us how to pray. One time he said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will. One time he did that. All the other times Jesus talked about praying, do you know what he focused on? Attitude. He told so many stories of say, when you pray, pray with this attitude. Like Luke 18, he talks about an old woman who was being oppressed and abused on every side. And he says to the, the in the story, Jesus says, this woman would go to the judge. He was an unjust judge. And he, she, every day she'd go before the judge and pound her fists on the table and say, help me, help me, help me. And the judge says, not today, not today, until finally the judge gets so sick of seeing this woman. He says, okay, I'll give you what you want. And Jesus says, imagine how much more a judge who really likes you can help you if you just ask. Shameless audacity. Folks, we need to pray with shameless audacity. Why? Because we know how it ends. Someone once asked the British missionary, Leslie Newbegin, are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to the future? He says, I'm neither. Christ is risen. We need to pray like Christ is risen. Shameless boldness about what we want to see happen in our neighbors' lives and in our families' lives and in our government, especially this year. Shameless audacity. The second thing, the first thing we learn from the story of Deborah is that God delivers the people. The second thing we learn is that he, God delivers his people in unexpected ways. I mean, the irony is so chewable on this. I mean, it's not going to be Barak who does it. It's not going to be Deborah who delivers. It's going to be Jael? Jael, are you kidding me? She's not even a Jew, 
The point of Judges is that God writes history through people's lives who are broken, flawed, and from the margins. And that's where the action and energy of God is. Do you hear it, Waterstone? God is writing history with crooked sticks like you and like me. How does that happen? How does he turn us into these crooked sticks who are writing history? It's in the song. When Deborah writes the high point of the song, there's a line. It just blows off the page. It goes like this. Blessed among women is jail. Do you know the next time you hear that line? Blessed among women is Mary. Everything in the First Testament is pointing to the center of the Second Testament. His name is Jesus Christ. What the song is pointing to is that one day God himself is going to become one of us and enter our story to save our story. And Jesus comes and he, he becomes a warrior of joy. He fights for us. How does Jesus fight for us? Well, he, he lives the life we should have lived. I was reading a couple months ago about this uh, exercise from, a, I think it was World Harvest Mission. It was called Tame the Tongue Exercise. And they put out this challenge. And they said, what I want you to do is for one week, tame your tongue. So don't say another bad word about another person who's not in your presence. Don't complain. Don't um, uh, boast about yourself for one week. And instead of doing those things with your tongue, build people up with your tongue. Be other-centered with your tongue just for one week. Do you think you could do it? I couldn't do it for an hour. I could never stand before God in his holiness with my tongue's current condition. But that's why Jesus came. And he never sinned with his tongue. And he only used his tongue for love and building up. And on the cross, that is given to me. So that when God sees me, he sees, Larry, you have a tame tongue. I couldn't do it on my own. Jesus did it for me. And God views me as righteous. And the same is true. With death, Jesus is a warrior of joy because he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And when Jesus was on the cross, this happened. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On that cross and in that moment, God treated Jesus with everything my sin deserved and your sin. And as a result, now, being a child of God, God treats me the way Jesus deserves to be treated. Jesus Christ came. He fought for us. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And he gives that to us so that we can be a child of God. So what does that mean? As we close, it means two things. One, as a church... It means we are warriors of joy, and that should overflow to our neighbors. We talk a lot about this rhythm of living out God's kingdom called neighboring. Let me remind you what it means. We're asking you to live this rhythm of neighboring by, one, praying for your neighbors weekly, by name. People you live around, people you work with, people who you recreate with. 
praying for a group of people weekly by name. Two, engaging them in conversations to build friendship, trust, and beauty in a relationship. And just because life unfolds one conversation at a time, you want to be part of their lives. And so you see a neighbor out, you drop what you're doing in a non-stocky way, you go and start talking to your neighbors. And three, pray, engage, invite. You build that relationship, nurture it to the point where you feel you can invite them to have a meal with you. Invite them to your house or invite them to a meal at Waterstone in our Alpha course, whatever it is. You neighbor and you neighbor and you show them what it's like to live with Jesus Christ. It's our mission to show the world what it's like to live with Jesus. So we're on mission. Listen, Waterstone, can you imagine if just 10% of us started living out the neighbor rhythm each week? What would happen at Waterstone? We'd blow the doors off this place. We'd have a whole set of different problems to worry about. Will you sing that song, not only today, that song of Jesus, but will you sing it on Monday and Tuesday? Then I want to bring it down to a personal level. Some of you walked into the room knowing that this week you're going to face the worst 900 chariots of your life. Financial problems, relationship problems, loss of job, loss of health. 900 chariots are facing you down. And here's what I want to say to you. In those seasons of life, listen for the thunder. You are perfectly positioned to experience deliverance. And whether or not it happens in this life, we are neither optimist nor pessimist, but Jesus Christ has risen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Deborah and the grace of the book of Judges. We do believe, Father, you've come to deliver us, that your son Jesus was our warrior of joy who for the joy that was set before him, the joy of living with him forever, he endured the cross, despising its shame to make us his family. Everything in us now and in this moment, Lord, no matter where we've come from, we want to honor you, Jesus, and give our hearts to you. Help us proclaim again and practice resurrection, even as we sing and as we leave. For Jesus' sake, amen.